We'll open up with prayer this morning and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together and we can learn more about your word. We do pray as we look at the book of Proverbs that you would help us to live lives according to your scriptures, not according to feelings or the doctrines of the world or the doctrines of false religions, but that we would be those who live by your word, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you until you come for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I look back before we uh, started today. I was trying to think back when we started this message. It was all the way back in October 15th. And so because um, I got interrupted, I was down. Bob had to fill in a, a time for me, and thank you for doing so, Bob. I want to just do a little review where we left off. Remember in this message, what I'm showing you is how Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon is teaching his children, his boys in particular, to live sexually pure. And therefore, they had to be those who lived according to the scriptures, not the standards of the world. And so do you remember that I gave you some categories to think about? And the two categories I wanted you to think about were those two terms, cataphatic versus apophatic. And remember, apophatic, I said, was away from the scriptures. Cataphatic is according to the scriptures. And so we talked about how many false religions today, and really the world, wants you to live apophatically away from scripture. And what that would mean is that you live according to your own desires, the desires and the morals of the world, or even that of false religion. One of the examples I gave you of apophatic living was that of the Eastern Orthodox religion. In the Eastern Orthodox religion, they are not so concerned about Bible study and attempting to get understanding from the scriptures. But what they want to focus on, on is mystery. So whereas you and I as evangelicals focus on a cataphatic faith, meaning according to the scriptures. Remember, kata is the preposition according to. Phatic means to speak. So we have a religion that is according to what God has spoken. It's according to this. But apophatic says, no, we don't want to know what's in here. We want to live according to the mystery or to our own desires or to that of the world. And so those are the categories I built for you. And one of the passages we used to look at that was, of course, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that you see on the screen, where Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Notice here, the secret things belong only to the Lord. And today in our culture, how many people get involved with the occult they want to get secret things that the Lord has not revealed. Think about horoscopes and soothsayers and people that will read your poems or they'll try to divine what may be true or not true by cards and tarot card readings, etc. That's all part of the secret things, but that's not who we are. The people of God live by the things that are revealed by the Lord. And so my point in saying that regarding Proverbs chapter 6 is notice it says the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. For what purpose? Just so that we can have more information and more knowledge? Well, certainly that's critical. We need to know who God is and what he requires. But it's also so that you and I may live lives that are pleasing to him. We live according to his standards, not our own. And so that's the point that I think Solomon is making to his kids. Hey, live according to scripture sexually. Don't allow your lives to be destroyed by the other woman or 
if you're a woman, the other man. Be faithful to your spouse all the days of your life. And if you do so, you're living cataphatically, according to what was spoken in the scriptures. Okay, so then we went to, doing a little review still, 2 Chronicles 33.6. Remember, we have Manasseh here, that evil king of Judah. What did he do? Well, notice it says that he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums. That's bad. That's evil. Now, what is sorcery? Sorcery is the attempt to get the secret things that the Lord has not revealed. Go back to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever. But the things that are secret things belong to the Lord alone. So notice Manasseh tried to get the secret things. Remember, I also mentioned that the term sorcery is the term that you see in the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. And I mentioned that the term sorcery there comes from pharmakeia. It's where we get our term for pharmacy. And one of the people that I cited to you, remember the 1960s, there was that famous leftist, his name was Timothy Leary. And what he believed is that if you could get people on psychedelic drugs, they would empty their minds and they would come in contact with the spiritual realm and they would get the secret things. That was really a religion in some sense in the drug culture of the 1960s. You know, oftentimes when I preach the gospel, I'll talk about how Jesus Christ was seen by over 500 people at one time, according to 1 Corinthians 15. That's important because it gets rid of the theory that some have that those who saw Jesus Christ were just hallucinating. And I'll often make the quip that the last time there was a mass hallucination of over 500 people was at Woodstock in the 1960s. Why? Because it was drug-induced, right? Well, that's the problem with drugs. The reason for them, really, in the 60s was to get people into contact with the secret things. You empty your mind, you use the psychedelic drugs, and you come into contact with things that really end up being demonic. Listen again, I'll just cite to you Timothy Leary to prove the point. This is Timothy Leary from his own writings. He said this, he said, quote, a psychedelic experience is a journey to new realms of consciousness. The scope and content of the experience is limitless, but its characteristic features are the transcendence of verbal concepts, of space-time dimensions, and of the ego or identity. Such experiences of enlarged consciousness can occur in a variety of ways. Sensory deprivation, yoga. Notice he says yoga exercises, discipline, meditation, religious or ascetic ecstasies, or spontaneously. He says most recently they have become available to anyone through the ingestion of psychedelic drugs such as LSD. What these do as the key chemical fact is they can open the mind, free the nervous system of its ordinary patterns and structures, unquote. So Timothy Leary was acknowledging that through the use of drugs, you could empty your mind and free yourself and to come into contact with the secret information, to put it in biblical terms. I'm not saying he says this, but to come into the secret things that Moses says we're not entitled to. The secret things belong to the Lord The things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children. That's the primary distinction between us and the pagan world. We go by what is written. The rest of the world goes by feelings. They go by false doctrine. And they go by the things that are secret. That's one of the big distinctions. And so again, that's going to play into how you and I live. 
if you and I are going to live according to the scriptures, we're going to have a sexually pure life. If we don't, we're going to live according to the standards of the world. If we're going to listen to the lie, then we're going to live sexually promiscu with sexual promiscuity and live in ways that are not pleasing to the Lord. And so that's why I showed you the 2 Corinthians 5, 6, or 8. And this is where we left off last time. Remember here, Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Notice here in verse 8, I'll just mention this real quickly. This is a very important passage that shows for the believer, the moment we die, our body may go into the ground, but our soul goes to be with the Lord in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is where heaven is. So the moment a Christian dies, they go to be with the Lord in paradise. Remember the thief on the cross? He says to Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. What does Jesus say to him? Ha, you're crazy. You're not entering. No, because the man believed in him, immediately he was Christ. Think about how little doctrine the man really knew. He knew who Christ was. That's what was critical. And so Jesus says, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. The term paradiso there, I think is a reference to the new Jerusalem. So the moment that man breathed, breathed his last, he was in the new Jerusalem in paradise. So that's exactly where the believer goes. But in the meantime, notice Paul says in verse 7 that we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, as we talk about that living by faith, not by sight, it sounds like the Bible's telling us that we are somehow these doofuses who live emotionally, that we have no facts to believe in, that we're just trying to take a blind leap of faith and there's no evidence for what we do. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is talking about when he says living by faith or walking by faith, remember the term peripateo? To walk means to live it out. So you're living your life by faith, not by sight. The distinction that Paul is making is if you live by sight, you're not living by the word of God. You're not living cataphatically according to the scriptures. You're living apophatically away from the scriptures. So to live by sight can mean anything other than living by faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all by God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what it means. Why? Because if you're living by sight, it could be LSD-induced, or it can be through yoga. The Satan doesn't care. However you get the lie, he doesn't care where the lie comes from. Does he care if it comes from LSD, or from your own imagination, or from the wicked neighbor that you, has, that you have that you want to try to please? It doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter if it comes from the Mormon who has a different Jesus or the Jehovah Witness who has a different Jesus or Islam or atheism. Satan doesn't care. But all of it apart from faith alone and Christ alone revealed in the scriptures alone is living by sight. That's the way it is. Now, the analogy I gave last time is remember back in Exodus 32, do you remember that the Israelites had a mediator named Moses? And you recall that that mediator Moses, he ascended up the mountain where they could not see him. Well, they wanted to live by sight. Notice on the screen, not by faith. They can't see him. So what did they do? 
Well, they built something they could see, namely what? The golden calf. Bob has mentioned this numerous times. They could control the golden calf. The golden calf didn't have moral demands upon their life, and they could see it. Think about it, dear ones. Who is the greater mediator than Moses? Jesus. Jesus ascended. He's seated at the right hand of God, and we can't see him. So are we going to build the golden calf? Are we going to live by sight? Or will we trust him in him and his word? Are we going to live by faith? It's really the same battle. It's what the battle was about back in Exodus 32. We're facing the same one. A mediator that can't be seen. Will we live by faith or are we going to live by sight? That's really the question. And again, you see the same idea in Romans 8, 24 through 25, where Paul says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what, for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Notice here the distinction between hope and what is seen is synonymous with the distinction be between living by faith and by sight up here. Does everyone see that? Now, you might say, wait a minute, Eric, hope doesn't sound the same as faith. Well, I would want you to make this note if you're a note taker. Hope, by the way, remember the term hope in Greek is elpis? And the reason that's important is it's, uh, it's how I remembered what it means is a lot of people hope Elvis is alive. Elvis? Elpis? This kind of sounds like, anyway, that's how I memorized it. Well, people have hope, right? But the hope is like faith, but it's oriented towards the future promises. That's the idea. And so think about it. He says, for in hope you've been saved. Does he not also say, for by grace we've been saved through faith? So whether it's you're saved by hope or by faith or synonymous, hope is just focused on the promises yet to come. But remember, Jesus Christ's gospel, the good news of who he is and what he's done, isn't just what Christ has done, it's what he is going to do. Right now, I'm in a debate with a preterist online. He's very friendly, so we've been debating back and forth. But they believe that all of the promises were fulfilled in 70 AD, and they don't believe there's going to be a literal bodily resurrection. That's a big problem. Why? Because that's part of our hope. The blessed hope that we, you and I are waiting for is not the destruction of the Jews in 70 AD, but the resurrection. How many here wake up every day and say, yes, I, oh, thank you, Lord, the Jews are wiped out in 70 AD. You know, how sick is that? But that's the blessed hope for the full preterist that all this happened in 70 AD. No, that's not the blessed hope. The hope is that Christ is returning and he's going to give us our resurrected body, just as he had. By the way, in Philippians 3, 20 through 21, remember, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in that passage in verse 21 that he will conform our body to the glory of his own. So we're going to be given, according to Philippians 3.21, a resurrected body that is conformed to that of Jesus Christ's glorified body. That's part of the great hope. Now the point is, whether we're living by faith or by hope, the point is it's evidence that we have found in the scriptures, either as to what Christ has done or what he's going to do. But we have evidence, and this evidence is backed up by predictive prophecy. You know, 710 years prior to the birth of Christ in Micah 5.2, Micah predicted that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was. 
Uh, Isaiah 7.14 says he'd be born of a virgin. He was. Zechariah 11.13 says he'd be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He was. You can go on and on and on, and throughout the scriptures you have predictive prophecy. There's no other book like it. There's not one other like it. So we have plenty of evidence. So when we're claiming that we're living by faith or by hope, it's not that we're taking a blind leap and we have no evidence. No, we have all the evidence we need. That's the point. But the evidence is found in the scriptures, not in the circumstances of life or our neighbor's religion or LSD or whatever it may be. That's all living by sight and what is, by what is seen. That's the point. So when you see that phrase, by sight, we don't live by sight or by what is seen, realize there's a myriad of things that that can mean. And if you want to define what it means to live by sight or by what is seen, it's anything other than living by faith in the scriptures, trusting the word of God. That's what it means to live by sight or by what is seen. Yeah, Bob. Hello? Okay. I'll use uh, distance. One of the things I've been running into yeah. is uh, this last week I took a day and did some more writing. The thing that happened with Eve in the garden, and we mentioned this video that's out there of a past tricks, that's her term. All right. Saying God lied to Eve and Satan told the truth. Yeah. The thing that really thwarts this I agree we, lay, we go by scripture but she's claiming she is too Yeah, because she's citing from Genesis 1 right so the insidious thing that I see going on and you were just telling me you're running into it yeah is yes we use the Bible but the twist is this the reader determines the meaning yes and that shift basically thwarts everything God said. So if she's this Presbyterian pastor says God lied, Satan told the truth, truth, and the proof is that they didn't die when they ate. Yes. By missing the authorial intent. It thwarts everything. I just ran into this this I spent Monday writing just one little section of this article. Yeah. And it's about Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Uh, make disciples of all nations, ethne. And so I have several really high-quality technical commentaries based on the Greek, plus which I don't cite. I'm trying to do full research just from the Matthew itself, yeah. the Greek words, repeated phrases, previews, reviews, all of that, to say what does Matthew mean here? Because Matthew's the Holy Spirit-inspired author. There's nothing in Matthew that says that nations means you actually turn a social unit into a disciple. <laughs> which is exactly what the most popular books so selling millions say. Yeah. One after another, they say that means you Christianize a social unit whether it's a culture or a nation or hopefully the whole world. But looking at Matthew, yeah. there's nowhere you would ever come to that conclusion. And the term methetes, disciple, is used 72 times in Matthew, 
whereas the verb form is only used a, a few times in the whole New Testament. But when you make a disciple, the result is a disciple. Right. So if a social unit isn't what Matthew means by a disciple, then these uh, writers are doing the same thing that this pastrix yes. in, in saying God lied, even though the Bible says God cannot lie, and Satan told the truth. You really have the same thing. It just depends how extreme you want to be. In both cases, the reader determines the meaning, not the Holy Spirit-inspired author. Yeah. So as soon as you make that flip, you can carry your Bibles anywhere you want. You can cite them off of your little phone when you're preaching, or you can do whatever you want. But if the, if the author doesn't determine the meaning, but the reader does, you have just gone into the unseen realm. Yes. But it's not the one that God defines. That's right. So thank you, Eric, for pointing yeah, out. Now, you're running into that with... Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if you are taking any passage, whether it's Genesis, Exodus, Luke, Romans... Matthew is the one I'm dealing with right now. Yeah. In every case, ask yourself this question. If I could know what the Holy Spirit-inspired author means, the author determines the meaning in every other realm of life, or you couldn't go to the grocery store. Yeah. Well, it says $5.99. No, as I read it, it means 95 right. cents. You can't right. function that way. Exactly. Okay. If I could know what the author means, which I believe he can, if language works the way language works, yeah. would I be willing to believe it? And if what the author says, the Holy Spirit-inspired author, is different than what I want to hear, am I going to still stick with what the author said and change my belief? Right. Or am I so wed to my culturally determined idea about that I wanted to mean that God lied to Eve so therefore abortion's fine that's where this person was going with it or we're going to disciple social units rather than persons yeah then if you don't really care what the author said you're fooling yourself and you're lying to everybody else by even using your bible right because satan quotes scripture and so, but not according to authorial intent. Yeah. So the key thing, you have to know, what does the author mean? Sometimes it's very difficult to find out because maybe there are some words that are obscure to us, yeah. figures of speech that were common then that we maybe didn't know. Yep. But if we can find out what the author meant, do we care or do we not care? That's right. And if we don't care, we're mystics, emergent, liberal, I don't care how pious you sound. Yeah. If you don't care, you're not pious, you're wicked. Amen. Wow. Thank you, Bob. Well said. Yeah, you know, it's so true. So we have our Bible, like Bob is saying, and we're saying live by that. But you're right. The postmodern movement has put a new wrinkle in all things saying, well, I interpret the Bible one way and they interpret the Bible another way. And therefore, the issue is really over who has the correct interpretation. So the way the evangelical church, what we used to believe, for example, in the 20th century, there used to be a unanimous belief amongst most evangelicals 
as Bob said, that the author grounds the meaning of the text. That came from a man named Edie Hirsch. By the way, Edie Hirsch isn't even a believer. He's actually a literary critic. He's still alive. I think he's in his late 90s. He debated a man, at least in writing, a man named Jacques Derrida. How many in here have ever heard of Jacques Derrida? Well, Derrida is very important. He's a French Marxist philosopher. And he is the one who stands behind critical race theory. See, critical race theory is just one element behind something called critical theory. Let me just explain what critical theory is because it ties in exactly to what we're dealing with in our culture. What critical theory says is that no one can come to a true interpretation in that because it was white, old, patriarchal men from Europe who wrote our history in the United States, well, because they can't know truth, we can jettison that and we can come up with our own history from a different constituency in America, and we don't have to listen to that. So everything is seen through the prism that you can't really ever come to a true interpretation. Where did that, that idea that you can't come to a true interpretation ultimately come from? It came from Immanuel Kant. It came from Satan. Yeah, exactly, that's right. It actually comes from Satan, right? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That's actually the root of it, going all the way back to the garden. But the people who influenced our philosophy was a man named Immanuel Kant, and he wrote a book called The Critique of Pure Reason. I think it's 1789, if I remember. But here's a statement that he made. He said that the way the real world is, he called it the noumenal world, is such that you can't know the noumenal world. And so what he argued is that we're stuck in what's called the phenomenal world, the world as it appears to us. So the world appears one way to you and another way to me, and therefore you're left with just subjectivity. But realize Immanuel Kant's statement is self-refuting. Because what he's saying is that the way the real world is such that you can't know the real world, well, he's making a statement about the real world. If Immanuel Kant is correct, then he can't know it either. He can't even describe what he's just said. So Immanuel Kant's own statement is self-refuting, and it's the basis of the entire postmodern movement. It is the basis of Jacques Derrida. It is the basis of having critical theory and critical race theory. That's the whole point of it. So the idea in our culture right now is that there's been too many people of one color who ran the legal system, therefore we need a whole other group of people of a different color, and they're going to come up with new law. Why? Well, because the Marxists have to have the haves and the have-nots. It's an artificial divide, and they're using postmodern hermeneutics, the divide between the author and the reader, to do it. You and I say the author grounds the meaning, they're saying the reader does. Bob gave a great example. How many times do you go and you get your, I'm maybe dating myself here, but you go to Perkins, you buy your patty melt, and the waitress comes up, says it's $7.99, and you say, well, that's not the way I interpret it. <laughs> what if my wife wrote a grocery list, go get milk, eggs, and bread, and I come back with ruffle chips, a candy bar, and root beer? Yeah. I say, well, that's just the way I interpret it. Well, she's not going to let me get away with that. And if we're not going to get away with that with our wives or husbands or what have you, as the... That's what and, stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Guilty of that. <laughs> you postmodern. Yeah. That, that's the way it is. Now, I want to show you a passage that I think in the Bible shows us that we have to have authorial... So in other words, what's the divide that Bob rightly pointed out? The divide is between who grounds the meaning of the text. Is it the author or the reader? I'm going to show you a biblical text that I think proves 
that God himself is saying it's the author. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're so blessed that providentially God, I think, deals with this issue here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's uh, turn to verse 16. So 2 Peter 1.16, we'll start there. 2 Peter 1.16, yeah, we'll start there. Now, before I read this text, I'll go on to here for a little bit. But the issue was you had false teachers who were saying to Peter and the congregation in Asia Minor, the various churches, that the apostles had the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament. So think of the chutzpah. You have false teachers who are saying the apostles' interpretation is wrong. Jesus is not going to return again. Now, where do we get that from? If you turn to 2 Peter 3, I think it's verse 4, you'll see that there are scoffers. Just real quickly, turn your page. Notice this. Oh, yeah, in verse 3, it says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing. Uh, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? The term coming there is parousia. That's what they're fighting about. So the false teachers are saying, oh, the apostles, they got the interpretation wrong. We have the right interpretation. Jesus isn't coming again. By the way, that's the problem with preterism. (laughs) Preterism says Jesus isn't coming again, right? Well, anyway, notice how does Peter refute this? This is so insightful. So now, who has the correct interpretation? Well, Peter says this. Verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and parousia, that's the coming, so that's the future coming, not the first coming, but the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now stop there. When were the eyewitnesses of his majesty? Well, of course, during his whole earthly ministry, But as you're going to find out, the particular event that Peter has in mind was on the Mount of of Transfiguration that we're going to be reading about in Matthew chapter 17. And it's on the mountain that the Heavenly Father actually speaks and therefore authenticates that the apostles had the correct interpretation. This is what Peter says. Notice verse 17. He says, For when he, that's Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. So this is what the Heavenly Father said while they're on the mountain. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John were up there, the three. And this is what the Father said from heaven. They heard this. He said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, does everyone see the phrase, this is my beloved Son? That's from Psalm 2-7. And the, the disciples recognized that right away. Why? Why is that important? Because Psalm 2 is all about the Messiah coming to rule and reign over the nations with a rod of iron. So it says Psalms 2.9. So right away, that's all about the rule of the Son over the nations. Therefore, what Peter reasons is if the Heavenly Father himself said that his Son is the one who is going to, as it says in Psalm 2, 7 through 9, rule and reign over the nations... If the Father is alluding to that passage, well, then Jesus is going to have to rule over the nations. Therefore, he must return. So the argument Peter is making is we were there. We were on site. We heard the Heavenly Father himself say, this is my beloved son, Psalm 2.7. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah reigning over the nations with the rod of iron. And they're saying, therefore, we had our interpretation authenticated by God himself. That's what he's saying. And so listen to how he says this. 
So he, he hears the, the word from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Stop there. Some years ago, I was teaching this book verse by verse. And I mentioned there's power in being there as the eyewitness isn't there. I, I don't know, many of you have heard this ad nauseum probably. My grandpa was a tank driver in World War II. And after the war, he spoke Frisian Dutch, so they kept him over as a translator so that they could go after the Nazi war criminals. And so he had to go to the death camps, and he saw the bodies stacked like cordwood. It was horrific. He never forgot it until the day he died, of course. Well, one day, he's a bricklayer. He lives in Michigan in Grand Rapids. And there was a lifelong friend that just said, well, the Holocaust never happened. And my grandpa just couldn't believe anyone could deny it. So he went to this man, and he just pulled him aside. He says, Jack, you've been a lifelong friend of mine, but if you ever want to remain as my friend, you're going to repent of that because I was there. I was there. I saw the body stacked like cordwood. I was there. And I'll never forget, even then, the, there's a, a fury in a man's eyes when they know the truth of something important. And he had that, and there was a power of that testimony. He saw it. That's the power that Peter has here. Don't tell me that you have the right interpretation. I was there. I heard God himself say, this is my beloved son. That's the power of what we have here. Yes, Brian. There's lots of good preterist and partial preterist teachers out there. And with what Bob was saying, that either you care about authorial intent or you don't and if you don't care that you might as well just you know don't even carry your bible around and don't teach anybody this would you apply that same standard that bob was talking about to the people i'm speaking of the preterists absolutely okay i think preterism is a, a serious attack on the gospel um just real quick i don't want to get us too off the topic but Preterism, there's two types of preterism. Preter comes from the Latin term praetor, which means past. These are the people who believe Jesus returned in 70 AD. So there's two camps. There's partial preterists and there's full preterists. R.C. Sproul, who I adored and loved, was a partial preterist, meaning he believed that Jesus came a second time in 70 AD, but there's going to be another return bodily for a real resurrection in the future. The problem with that is in the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus comes how many times? It says that he comes a second time, not with reference to sin, but for the salvation of those who believe. So how many times does Jesus come? He comes two times. Well, the partial preterist has him coming the first time to get rid of sin, second time to judge the Jews in 70 AD, and a third time to give us a resurrection. How many know that three isn't the same as two? Okay, so therefore, Houston, we've got a problem. The other problem is they believe that the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 was somehow a, a, a man who lived in 70 AD that Christ destroyed. The problem with that is it's, he's destroyed at the parousia of Christ. The parousia, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.15, is when we get a resurrection. So for the partial preterist who pushes the parousia into 70 AD, that's when the resurrection occurs. Did, were we raised from the dead? Well, no. Okay, so partial preterism is gone. So the full preterist doubles down and sees those contradictions, and they say, yes, the resurrection did already happen in 70 AD. 
all of the hope, it's all over, it's all done. To me, that's a compromise of the gospel where I, I think that that's no longer a brother or sister. Exactly. And, and I can be kind to them, I can love them, I'll you know, debate with them, I'll talk with them, but they're not a brother or sister in the Lord. If you're a full preterist, you're a heretic. Hymenaeus and Philetus. Exactly. Hymenaeus and Philetus, exactly as Paul said, or as Bob said, Paul wrote about them in First and Second Timothy. They're the ones who said the resurrection already occurred. So that's exactly right. That's a big problem. And I think, again, it's because they are, think that they're entitled to their own interpretation. Absolutely. Okay, so take a person like R.C. Sprawl. Yes. I've heard people say, well, you can glean uh, good biblical uh, teaching from Absolutely. an R.C. Sproul. But at the same time, you're saying you wouldn't consider him a brother. No, or a, oh, he's a partial preterist. No. Yep. He's not a full preterist. I would consider him a brother. Exactly, because they don't think there's any future hope of a resurrection. And so the only way they can get around that is to say, well, um, there's not going to be a physical resurrection. It's only spiritual. Okay? Well, that's what I think Hymenaeus and Philetus argued. Can you imagine Hymenaeus and Philetus? They live in Ephesus, and they're claiming the resurrection already occurred. Well, of course, you'd look at your grandma who's still in the grave. You'd say, well, what do you mean she's raised? Her body's still in the ground. Well, they would have to say, well, it was a spiritual resurrection. No, we're going to be given a physical resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.4, Paul himself says that Jesus was buried. Do you bury a spirit? No. Remember, Jesus says in Luke 23, is it 46? He says, I do not, he says, I am not a spirit, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. They ate with him. They touched him. They physically saw him. No, he wasn't a spirit. He was physical. That's the same resurrection we're going to have, according to Philippians 3.21. Yes, Luann. I just wanted to add with, um, in 2 Peter 3.16, yes. um, talking about, you know, some of Paul's teachings were difficult, and Peter goes on and just kind of explains this, and he says, some of these, thing, some of these letters are hard to understand. Yes. Things the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of scriptures. Yes. And I couldn't help but think of, um, like in hyper-dispensationalism also, I mean, they can't, because there's a mystery, you know, they can't even define when the church is or who the church yes. is because of, you know, so we oh. have all of these mysteries and seeking after secret things within our own congregation sometimes, you know? Yes. Amen. Well said, Luann. That's exactly right. Very good. Yeah, great cross-reference. Yeah, they're distorting the scriptures. Why? Because they're differing from the interpretation of the apostles. Not that the apostles um, are arguing that there's somehow a group of men outside of the apostles, like the magisterium of the Catholic Church, that ground all meaning. That's not the point that we should come away with here. The point is that God the Father... God the Son and God the Holy Spirit who give us the scriptures are the ones who ground the meaning of the text. It's the authors who wrote scripture that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's exactly what 2 Peter goes on to say. Notice he says, and this is verse 19. Notice what Peter says, 2 Peter 1.19. He says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. By the way, the reference to the morning star there is a, a reference to the Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, 17, that you're going to have a star that rises from Jacob. That's the, the reference. But notice, what does he mean by this? He says, 
we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Was there something lacking in the prophetic word of the Old Testament? No. P Peter's point is that the interpretation of it was authenticated by God himself that this Messiah is going to rule and reign upon the earth. So listen to this. He goes on to say, I mean, this is exactly the doctrine that we're wrestling with. Who grounds the meaning, the author or the reader? He says, oops, I turned too far. He says, we pay attention as a, light, a, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy, literally it's no interpretation, or no, it is there, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's, there it is, own interpretation. Does everyone see that? That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Okay, now why? Why doesn't prophecy come from someone's own interpretation? He says, for, this is explanatory, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. He grounds the meaning, and so you're not entitled to your own interpretation. So when God the Father gave the apostles the correct interpretation regarding Jesus Christ coming again, they knew they had it. Why? Because God is the one who grounds the meaning of the text. Dear ones, if there's ever a passage that you want to go to to show that God the author of scripture grounds the meaning, it's this one. It handles the very issue that Bob just talked about. So, very good. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, Paul. Yeah, I based my comments on the following. Uh, Second Peter, uh, the first chapter, 16th verse, for we, did not for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when yes. we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and so forth. I want to base my thoughts on that. And yes. when I say, I have, as I've heard you two uh, over the years, you've become more and more passionate about the evil in the society, about the drifting of the society, and about the uh, clarity that the Holy Scriptures is and making, it, making us know that. Yeah, amen. And, that's real, and that kind of uh, increasing, uh, I would even say powerful, uh, enthusiasm that you had towards that. Uh, that could be a slippery slope, couldn't it? I mean, you could go into emotionalism, or you can be just simply emotional about what the word really has to say. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm tending towards the latter, and I do appreciate you guys so terribly much that you have a passion towards the scripture, but you stick to the scripture. And I think that's fantastic, and that's what I would like to see more of. And uh, well, I, I'm sure not only from you, but the entire congregation here, I'll see more of, that we stick to the scripture, we're passionate about the scripture, and we want that to happen. Thank you. Yeah, Paul, thank you. Yeah, I think our emotions and our, it always has to be governed by our intellect first. So it's the intellect and knowing the scriptures that give us our passion, right? Um, a passion that's misguided is dangerous, but passion that's directed towards the scriptures, I think, is a righteous thing. Absolutely. By the way, um, one of the reasons, I, I just want to mention one thing. Notice everybody in the Second Peter 1, where it says, it's in verse 19, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then verse 20, he says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. There's debate on this text as to whether the issue was the interpretation or the origination of prophecy. To me, the best reading of this is it is as the ESV says that you're not allowed your own interpretation. Okay, why? Because the issue that Peter was dealing with, he wasn't dealing with false prophets. 
he was dealing with false teachers. The issue wasn't the origination of Scripture, although that's tangential. It's certainly in the background because God is the originator of Scripture. He grounds the meaning. The issue was the interpretation of it. How do we know that? Notice what he says the very next section, 2 Peter 2, 1. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, that's in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. Is he dealing with false prophets or false teachers? He's dealing with false teachers. The false teacher isn't claiming that they gave the origination of Scripture. They're claiming a different interpretation of Scripture. No one's entitled to their own interpretation. The author grounds the meaning of the text. That's what 2 Peter 1 there is teaching us. Okay, so with that, let's get back on track here. We'll get back to Proverbs. I want you to see what the Scriptures reveal regarding our faithfulness to our spouse. That's the whole point that Solomon wants to drive us to. Proverbs 6, 25 through 26. Notice he says to his son, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Now stop there. Whose beauty? It's okay to desire the beauty of your wife, but this is not the man's wife. This is the other woman. Okay, that's the point. It says, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids, for on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Now, dear ones, notice here, when Solomon writes, do not desire her beauty in your heart, the term heart there, lavav, in Hebrew, is really the center of the thought life. So for the, the Israelite, they knew that the heart was the center of the thought life, including your will, your intellect, and your emotions. So they knew that the heart actually was an organ that pumped blood. You and I will use the heart metaphorically in our own culture as well. We'll say, well, that football team played with a lot of heart. Or uh, I really appreciate the man's heart in this. Or we'll, we'll say different things like that. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Larry. That their heart's not in it. Right? Are we saying literally their aorta isn't in it? Their left ventricle isn't? What's, I mean, no, we know that we're using a metaphor, and that's exactly what's being used here. So the idea is do not desire her beauty in your thought life. That's the way you can think of it. I had a godly professor who taught me Hebrew back in Northwestern College, and he was actually a little bit younger than I was. He was in his early 30s. I just left the airline industry. And I'll never forget, he told a story. He was in a checkout line at a grocery store, and his two little boys are with him. And of course, they always have those scantily clad women in the magazines, right, as you're going through the, like, whatever magazines they are, people or whatever. And his boys, of course, couldn't help but notice. And he looked at him. I mean, he was telling us the story because he was relating godliness. He said, boys, the first look is free, but the second will cost you. And what did he mean by that? He said he didn't want his boys to live in a way where they dwelt upon those types of images in your mind. Luther had a very famous analogy as well. Luther said that you often can't control the birds that are flying above your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. <laughs> That's a good way of thinking about it. In other words, you can't help but notice people, but you can help whether you dwell on them in your thought life. That's exactly what Solomon is saying here. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Don't dwell on it in your mind. That's the idea. Why? Because you'll end up being taken captive and destroyed 
by that illicit relationship. God has given us sexual, uh, a sexual nature, but it is to be exercised within the confines of one man, one woman in marriage. Genesis 2.24, for this pur purpose, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave, literally davake, they will covenant together and become one flesh. Jesus says what God has put together, let no man tear apart. That's where the sexual union is to be. Now, there's a very complex reading here in the Hebrew. It's very difficult, actually, the Hebrew, because notice here you have italicized words. That means we have to interject those as the English translators. Let me give you a better rendering here of verse 26. This comes from a Dwayne Garrett. Dwayne Garrett actually wrote my Hebrew grammar uh, that I took when I was in seminary. And listen to the, how he would render verse 26. It'll help you understand this passage. Let me read it to you. So if you're a note taker, you can jot this down. He says, quote, this is verse 26. He would render it this way. Although the price of a prostitute may be as much as a loaf of bread, another man's wife hunts the precious life. Let me read that again. Although the price of a prostitute may be cheap, as it were, as much as a loaf of bread, another man's wife, remember the other woman, hunts the precious life. So the idea here is that the man's life is precious, and this wayward woman, the other woman, is in a sense hunting the precious life. So the idea is that he may spend on the cheap to get this harlot, but the cost of it is going to be his very life. And the idea here is because Solomon has the other woman, the harlot. Remember, the harlot is the other woman. It's not just a paid woman, but it's any woman outside of being his wife. And the idea is if it's another married woman, the other woman, then that husband is going to want to kill him. That's the point that he's going to be driving us to. So instead of dwelling on the beauty of the other woman, the mind of the Christian is to be focused on the promises of God. That's why we do the Lord's Supper, so that we dwell on those things. That's why we're in the scriptures, so that we dwell on those things. That's why we try to maintain a happy life between husband and wife, so that we're content with one another. That's the idea, all to live a godly life. And that's why, turn your Bibles to Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Where's the focus of our thought life? Is it on the other woman or the other man, if you're a woman? Or is it on the promises of God? Colossians 3, 1 through 2. I remember Bob teaching us this very well when he was teaching through Colossians, these very verses. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Give you a time to turn to it there. Notice it says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So where is our mind to be? It's on the kingdom promises. That's the idea. I tell you, dear ones, this has had a lot of, it's, it's carried a lot of weight for me the last couple of years as I've seen America change. You know, I grew up where you could burn any type of fossil fuel you wanted and you didn't feel guilty. And I burned a lot of them. I burned more fossil. I've flown, I've had more cylinders operating in my life than just about anyone. Airplanes and turbine engines and all sorts of engines I've been around. And I think about now, I'm some sort of sinner in our culture. I think about how if some of the states get their way, 
in 10 to 15 years, you won't be able to have a gasoline-powered vehicle? And I'm sure, oh yeah, when it's electric, they'll never turn it off on you, would they? They would never stoop to that level. And I just think about, my point in saying this is, this life and this world seems to be something that's foreign to me, that doesn't seem as exciting. It seems like it's just a Marxist-controlled thing. And my point in saying that is, as my mind becomes more receptive to the kingdom of God, as I grow older, you start seeing that your own mortality is before you. Down, hopefully down the road a little ways. I've got a 14-year-old son. My point is, thinking about what the glorious kingdom will be like is an awesome thing. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ gets the accolades he deserves and that you see it? That Jesus Christ will be reigning from Jerusalem and the nations will have to go up, as it says, in Zechariah 14, 16 through 17, and they will have to worship him at the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they do not, they won't get rain on their land. And all of a sudden, who has the correct interpretation? That's going to be settled. There's going to be a new sheriff town. You know, Bob has fought for the truth of the scriptures for 40 years. He's written CIC commentary and fought and fought and fought against false teaching, false interpretation year after year. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus is going to settle it when he returns? Can you imagine no longer are you going to have children that are murdered in their schools? No longer are you going to have, you're going to have freedoms that you've, can you imagine in Isaiah chapter 2, the swords will be beaten into plowshares, it says, and the spears into pruning hooks, and no longer will the nations learn war. Can you imagine what a day that will be? There's no more death on God's holy mountain. The Israelites won't be fleeing for their lives. They'll be living securely with the Lord. And you will be in your resurrected body. All the ailments that you have gone. When you start dwelling on these things and thinking about what the scriptures are telling you, all of a sudden, the other woman and the other man don't seem all that important. That's the point of living for the promises of God. It's a, it is the way that you're going to live a godly life. If you stop living for those promises, you'll try to get all you can here and now. You'll try to get the other woman or the other man. You'll try to do it. But all of a sudden, if you say, hey, you know what? The promises to come are so magnificent. I want to live for those things. That's what Solomon is laying out for us. Notice here he says, adultery always has consequences. Proverbs 6, 27 to 31. He says, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? By the way, these are rhetorical questions. What's the implied answer? Well, of course not. Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not, go, gets, not be scorched? Well, of course not. Verse 29, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. By the way, both in, the, in this life, but also the life to come. Verse 30 says, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Notice here he says, men do not despise a thief if he steals. The point in that is men will have some compassion, even on the thief, if they need to steal in order to survive. But they won't on anyone who tries to go after their wife. That's the point that he's making. And so there's going to be dire consequences for the man who takes another man's wife. That's the point that Solomon is making. Proverbs 632 to 35, he says, The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. 
Notice, he who would destroy himself, if you're set out in destroying yourself, take another man's wife. You'll, you'll get there. You'll destroy yourself. Notice verse 33. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. There's no way that you're going to appease the man whose wife has been stolen. That's the point that the writer of Proverbs is making. And so, yes, Solomon focuses on the consequences here and now that the physical death of a man because of other men will go after him is almost certain in that culture. But think about there's greater consequences, and Solomon doesn't deny this in other places like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, that life under the sun is temporary, and that ultimately we're all going to answer to the one who is our creator. And yes, if we will live no differently than the, the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those of us who belong to the Lord belong by faith alone and Christ alone. And the moment you believed, your sins were forgiven forevermore. And you and I are therefore called to live differently, not to earn, but out of the gratitude to the one who purchased us by his blood. And as we were saved, we were given the spirit who enables us first to believe, but also we are those who now can focus on the promises to come and forsake the other woman or the other man and live lives that are pleasing to him. Not because we're so great, but because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's what I think we should take away here from this section of Proverbs 6, all these verses that we covered up to verse 35. Okay? Now, with that, let's bow our heads in prayer, and let's pray for Bob for the message that we have coming up here, a very important one in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for our time together. I do pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, today would be their day to trust and believe in you for the forgiveness of sins. But for all of us who believe, Lord, I do pray that we live lives that are different, that our minds would be focused on your promises and the glories of the kingdom that will come, not just in heaven, but on earth, as you promised, that will reign with you. And that you would give us this new vision, this new excitement about these things about the glories of the promises that you've given us and that we'd forsake the sins and the things that we dwell on in this life that aren't from you. I pray, Lord, that you would do that for us, all for the greatness of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Lord. And I do pray for Bob. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be with him during the sermon. Give us ears to hear and help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers who delude themselves. We pray for Bob and his treatment of 1 Corinthians 9. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.